This is CliffCentral.com. Welcome to the Renegade Report. I'm Jonathan. And Ramon is present. And I have no idea what this sounds like because I don't have headphones. We're using a slightly different setup today. We've got this like porn star setup here somewhere else in Cliff Central today. It's pretty cool, like working off Wi-Fi to my phone. But anyway, if you don't like the quality, well, screw you. Uh, and uh, thanks for listening. And if you, yeah, info at Cliff Central, send all your complaints there. Did you, uh, talking about screw you, did you see the letter Donald Trump sent to Kim Jong-un? No. He has told him uh, in a very funny letter, uh, sort of semi-serious, but very Donald Trumpish. Did it start uh, with Dear Rocket Man? It did not start with Dear Rocket Man, I but it talks about it. how um, he's canceling the summit, which by the time you hear this podcast, you will know about. So they're no longer going to meet. Uh, but he says in there all kinds of complimentary things. But the one line that stands out is, uh, he's cancelling because he says that they've been aggressive. You know, uh, North Korea recently has been quite aggressive okay. in, their, in uh, whatever in their, their discussions. I think they got lost their shit with South Korea doing military drills last week. And he writes in the letter something to the effect of, um, even though you talk about your mili- your nuclear power, our nuclear power is so massive <laughs> and so devastating. <laughs> That should we ever need to use it? God help the world, basically. That's what the letter says. Just a brilliant piece of tr- uh, diplomatic trolling. and it's, it's uh, a dick measuring contest between... Yeah, I'm interested to see where it goes next. It's a, it's a great... Uh, this, is, this is the great soap opera that we currently see ourselves in. Uh, yeah, I don't watch soap operas, but yes. Well, you live, in, you live in the world, Ramon. Well, South Africa's already a sh- shithole country with enough <laughs> of a soap opera. So Not enough soap, though. But other than that, yeah. Can we get on to communications now? Well, we can get on to communications. Uh, we have a guest in, uh, I would say studio, but room <laughs> today, uh, Nick Cleland, who is also on Gareth's podcast, so maybe listen to ours first. Uh, <laughs> screw him. Uh, no, so he's on both the podcasts. We're going to try not uh, double over the same ground uh, with doing this. Nick, uh, obviously, formerly... Uh, with the DA as an MP in the early 2000s, I think, till yep. when? Um, 99, 2004. Cool. And then uh, involved in all kinds of uh, communications. So really, he's a communications specialist. Uh, now runs uh, a company called Resolve Communications in Cape Town. Uh, well known for uh, involvement, I w- would say, uh, or consulting to the DA? No, no, not to the DA at all. Okay. To no. the government? Well, the city of Cape Town. Okay. On one three-month contract. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, that's okay. There's no such thing as bad publicity. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, so he's, uh, you've written a book called Spin, The Art of Managing the Media. I've had a chance to read it. Ramon hasn't. No, I have not. It's usually jo- the other way around. And Jonathan told me this morning he read the book. So here <laughs> I am sitting like an ass with a mouthful but of it teeth. It only takes two hours to read. So what have you done all day? In fairness, it does. Uh, only I've, take about two hours I, to I'm read. a busy man, Nick. I have a job, a full-time one. <laughs> And I couldn't find the book anyway. Yeah, so. I've got, I've got, I've got all the time in the world. Um, right. So, look, it's uh, there are specifics in the book I want to ask you about. Sure. But uh, look, you wrote the book firstly with Ryan Kutzia. Mm-hmm. Uh, Ooh, Jonathan's he, friend. He he doesn't like me at all. Oh, because um, you called him a 
failed campaigner. He is a failed campaigner um, based on his last attempts. Um, he tried to drive not Brexiting. Um, so, but let's not pick on Ryan. Uh, we disagree, but I'd still love to have a chat with him sometime. Uh, so the two of you wrote this book. Uh, you both were involved in strategizing the communications for the DA. And uh, the Western Cape government. And the Western Cape government. Mm-hmm. Um, and look, if you deal with any media, if you're a journalist, I really recommend this book, not just because Nick's here, but because it, there's a lot of basic concepts that uh, you might know already, but they certainly expand on in the book. And if you don't know, they are immensely valuable. Simple stuff like what journalists take on record and off record or um, how to set up a campaign uh, and how you want to go about it because you talk quite a bit. So one of the sections I found really interesting was you have a chapter entitled, I think, How to Become Famous. Hmm. Uh, well, I don't think that's the title of the chapter. I think it's no. All How to Become Famous. Uh, you want to talk about that a little bit? Yeah. I mean, look, it's, it's, it actually started at a time when the Democratic Party – was the 1.7% party, growing slightly to about 7 or 8% in 1999. And we simply just couldn't rely on getting our message across. We weren't big enough. We weren't the Nats. We weren't the ANC. And we, which we, you know, we couldn't get the SABC to come to any of our events, frankly. We've got no TV, no radio. So we invented or at least conceptualized a way to make media, to make coverage. So it's, there's a funny quote in the book. Uh, I think you were swearing at someone at the DA. I mean, at the at the SABC. Uh, yeah. <laughs> if you don't come to my effing event or something to the effect of the that, the book doesn't even say effing. Uh, <laughs> the, the book is more explicit. Yeah. So um, one of the one of the things I picked up in the book was uh, this quote, uh, which maybe we can talk a little bit about yep. government and 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 how. South Africans view government. Mm-hmm. Um, the idea that the Western Cape government used to have, I don't know if they still stick to this, but the message of the campaign was, and the entire message of the party was, yep. it's not our job to give you a better life, but we will make a deal with you. We will give you opportunities to improve your own life. It will be up to you to take responsibility for using those opportunities yep. to actually make your own life better. Now, that fits perfectly with my own yep. ideology. Yep. Um, so... Tell us a little bit how sure. that, about so, that. So if you think about it, the Western Cape government victory in 2009 for the DA, you end up with this party in South Africa that is not the ANC running a provincial government. So you had to set each, set each other apart, set the Western Cape government as an entity apart from all the ANC governments. And we did a lot of research and followed the right methodology to actually come up with this. But it was a fascinating process because people in South Africa, having gone through 1994 and the whole sort of messaging from the ANC, had bought into this idea of a better life for all. And, and in their heads was not just a better life for all as a dream, but my government will give me a better life for all. Mm. That's what they do. And if they don't, they've failed. And if they do, they've succeeded. And the idea of this was to actually shatter the paradigm, was to say, no, that deal is off. We are not going to give you a better life. It's not our job to give you a better life. It's our job to give you opportunities, but it's your job for the responsibilities. And, I mean, some of the examples that would include would, yeah, we'll build you the brand-new Kailicha hospital, but, you know, you've got to act in a way that keeps yourself healthy. You take your meds if you're on meds. 
you know, you, you make sure your children are looked after, etc. Um, all sorts of things that are the responsibility of the individual. And the state will do its bit. The best example, frankly, was education. We will give you the best teachers in South Africa. But if you're a parent, make sure your kids do their homework. If your kids don't do their homework, it's not going to help. We need both. We need opportunity and responsibility. And then put together, that is the better life. And, and I mean, that sounds great philosophically. But the much more difficult thing was to do is how do you actually institutionalize that message from philosophy, from manifesto, into a working day-to-day government? And that's a hell of a difficult job to do. So how did you do it? <laughs> we actually, I mean, we, we created this thing. It's called ABC. So A is the opportunity, right? B is, is the responsibility required of the citizen. And C is the outcome. Mm. And so I then created a system whereby every piece of communication from the government, the premier's speeches, a tweet, a, a document, a presentation, and when I say everything, I mean literally everything, had to have an ABC or it was vetoed. Press statement, ABC. You know, talk to a journalist, ABC. And that is the discipline required to communicate. Right. And if you don't do that, you aren't communicating. That's what people don't understand about communications. It's a bloody well-oiled machine. Everything has to be considered, and every single piece of information coming out of an institution has to not be the same, but has to have the same, relay the same principles or messages all the time, consistently. On message, in volume, over time. And it looks like that has sort of disappeared. (laughs) Yeah, that's what I want to say. Is, is where where is not just the DA you, specifically? Sorry, John, yeah, but like, yeah. uh, politically, it seems yeah. there's just maybe it's maybe it's social media, maybe it's Twitter, maybe it's, it's just too much information in one. Yeah. In well, one the EFF go. is on message all the time. I would say yeah. on, on their message. Well, no, yeah, well, but take, they got one message from politicians. The people who do it best nowadays are companies because they make mega bucks from it. So actually, the big great and successful companies are on message because that is the difference between profit and loss. Political parties, yeah, I mean, there's, that, that accountability is not there, and I think you're right. I think that the EFF is doing a good job at having a message, yeah. whatever you may think of the message. But, but then you've got it certainly one, is instilled. They have, they have an idea, it runs through everything. Yeah. It, it, it's, it is powerful. It's easy to have just one message. Yeah, but it's also important to because, you know, you've got to treat the public, and I mean, without something patronizing, you've got to treat the public like a well-educated 12-year-old. If you can just say a message again, again, and again in a simple, digestible way, then you're talking to the entire population. Yeah. I mean, that's what this is about. And it sounds simplistic and patronizing, but that is the underlying rule of successful political communication. Yeah, you spoke about driving the issue in the book. It's one, yeah. of, one of the chapters as well. Um, and I think it was exactly that. You pick uh, – what was it? You split it into a theme. Uh, a theme on an issue. Okay, the thing about driving issues, and this is like now going back to the idea of becoming famous. So the best way to explain it, let me do it this way. Um, there's a story um, from the 1980s. During the middle of apartheid, um, there was a man who started a supermarket in the Western Cape. And um, his name was Raymond Ackerman. He was starting a chain called Pick and Pay. And – what he did is at 12 of his um, pick-and-pays, he had pick-and-pay petrol stations. And he said, no, listen, the pe- price of petrol in South Africa is outrageous. The NAT government is just hiking up the tariffs. Re- I'm going to give you a food voucher if you buy your petrol from me. And the government went ballistic. They went ballistic because they said, it's, you cannot give food vouchers. You cannot subsidize petrol. It's against the law. And he said, I'm going to do it. And they said, you can't, but I'm going to do it. The conflict created 
news because mm. that is what news is. Everyone in South Africa knew that this one man was standing up for the price of petrol. And in that old sort of fashion sexist society, he was dubbed the housewife's friend. And it helped build the reputation of his nascent business. And what happened, though, is if you pick the right fight and you are fighting on behalf of your market that you want to communicate to and resonate with, they will remember you because it's not just a once-off PR event. The fight carries on forever. It's like, are you fighting for or against Nkandla? Are you campaigning for or against the war between the United States and Mexico? These things people remember because they are points of conflict. Conflict equals news. And that's how you become famous, by choosing the right fight that resonates with your market. Yeah, I mean, I, mean, yeah, I, can't, I can't disagree with that. Because uh, well, that's what you guys do on the show. Well, we don't create conflict on the show, Jonathan. Do we? <laughs> for we, some time now, we need to get some conflict in here. Yeah, we haven't done so for a while. Last time we were in the news was Steve Hoffman, perhaps. I don't know. You were recently photoshopped onto a meme, so I know. <laughs> and the left can't meme. <laughs> and the meme is that the left can't meme because the meme of me is so shit. Yeah, no, it's 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 absolutely that's why it was crazy. funny at the time. But um, uh, okay, agree. Sorry, sorry. So, yeah. so conflict creates news. Is it me, or does it appear that journalists are creating their own conflict? I, I'm going to just give the example. So just this past week, uh, Gareth has been in the news. Okay, now now I I say in the Which news, Gareth? Gareth Cliff. He's been in the news, uh, but he hasn't actually been in the news. So so let me. Because I watched this whole thing unfold and how it actually became a story. So uh, we're recording this a couple of days before you'll hear it on Tuesday. But uh, about three, four, five days ago, probably last week, in fact, a week ago, Gareth on his show makes a comment about uh, what's going on between Israel and the Palestinians in Gaza. the comment, uh, if you're, if you're pro-Israel, probably is more towards being pro-Israel, and the, if you're pro-Palestinian, it's less pro-Palestinian. Um, he makes that comment, nothing happens. Literally, nothing happens. Uh, then, two days ago, or oh, 36 hours ago, Yusuf Abramji, um, either listens to the podcast or someone who listens to the podcast tells him, no, no, Gareth has said X, Y, Z. Um, so he then sends out a tweet. At this point, to, up to this point, there is no news. <laughs> he sends out a tweet and uh, he says something to the effect of, you know, he challenges Gareth and, and you, this is an unacceptable opinion slash view and, and uh, you know, the massacre or whatever that's going on or so, so on and so forth. I don't want to put words in his mouth, but he, he was unhappy. Uh, now you've got a high-profile person uh, uh, challenging another high-profile person. Uh, so nothing happens for a couple of hours, but the tweet gets traction and it gets retweeted and other people climb onto the bandwagon. Now you've got Abramji plus friends. So Radio Islam. At this stage, there's nothing on the internet about this. Radio Islam writes a story about the you know, genocidal maniac Gareth Cliff. And so that then perpetuates that cycle. And before you know it, there's a city press story. And then two hours after that, there's a News 24 story. Okay, And, and, and what they do is they aggregate each other. So Radio Islam aggregates Abramji plus whoever t- replied. 
City Press aggregates Radio Islam and, and News 24 aggregates all the others. Uh, and this seems to be the way things happen now. No, no. Let me interrupt you there. To yeah. My view. Yes, it's the medium is different. The speed is different. But it's exactly what journalists have always done. Okay. If you said something at a conference 20 years ago, and then Yusuf Abramji found out about it, two weeks later, then he might say something on the radio, and then someone from a newspaper may pick that up and then try to sort of get it going, stir it up. Journalists are opportunists. <laughs> they look for these opportunities because conflict makes news. They mm. do that, but it isn't brand new now. It's what they've always done. It's just that's what they like. They want that's what news is for them. But social media uh, is like kerosene to Absolutely. to the fire. Absolutely. Yeah, it just makes the same it, thing, makes just it done quicker, faster, and more furiously. But how long will that last, though? I mean, how long can outrage culture last? Well, you look at me like this. <laughs> Since the beginning of time oh, to the end of filming. time. <laughs> but, it's, but I thought it was just the past five years with snowflakes no. and social justice warriors. What are you talking about, Nick? Was it outrage before? Before 2010? Is, is it not hitting like a nidus? Is, is it not getting just out of hand now? And Well, now the mobs have... I mean, people are mentally ill over the things they yeah. get outraged about. You know, yeah. you talk about Trump in the book uh, a little bit. You're using yeah. this campaign as an example of the branding. Yeah. Um, and... There are, I mean, there is literally Trump derangement syndrome. It actually is recognized as uh, sort of an anxiety type of, of, of almost illness. It's not quite DSM, but but it's, it's, it's recognized mm -hmm. by medical professionals. Um, Just people, you. People are, no, and, no. And Ben Shapiro's wife. It, it, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Who's a doctor, by the way, in case you didn't Never know. Never knew that. Good, good to know. Um, I, you, you, people are getting very unwell about this stuff. You see it in South yeah, African social yeah. media as well. Uh, Ashwin Villemsa walks off a set, mm -hmm. uh, gets a little bit upset with his co-hosts. Nobody really knows what happens, but the word quota and apartheid gets used. So, of course, it must be a racial thing. Um, and you have people outpouring themselves on Twitter talking about… So that's the thing. That everyone's got a platform now. And that's the difference is that before, only the journalists had the platform. The, all of us, the citizens, were the recipients of their wisdom. You know, we, there was stuff happening in the world, and journalists were the medium through which we heard about the world. Mm. And that's how the world interacted. Now we've got this free-for-all. So good There or are bad. journalists. That's great. There are people, and we are all interacting with each other online. I mean, so that's democracy. That's democracy of ideas. That's Indeed. good. Yeah. But it's going to lead to the kind of stuff you're talking about, obviously. Yeah, and I think it should lead to that. I want more polarization in society. That's Why? the price you pay for freedom, man. <laughs> you want more polarization. You want more trust. No, listen. This bullshit about this. Kumbaya. South Africans love the word unity for some reason. I don't know fucking why they love that word. It's, it ends in R-T-Y. It's, it's like equity. It's the same shit. Right. Uh, unity is the most bullshit term, political term, since 1994. We don't want unity. We want a strong, forceful marketplace of ideas and do you think that we will agree on something or other the we? at any time well hopefully citizens but uh, yeah citizens are unified. relatively quiet no no I, I don't want them to be unified so we don't you want them want to it. be unified in this though no I don't want, in what way you don't in, want them to be unified in their request for unity or their their, their, their de denial of unity no 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 unity is just seen as like a moral good for so some you want reason. everyone to not believe in unity well i don't think moral, unity should be something we should aspire to so we should be unified in that 
believe. Indeed. Yes, Nick. You come on my show and just troll me. Really now. It's a good troll. So how imp- okay, fine, fine. About to Martin. Uh, how imp- I'm not trolling you. Um, how, how important is truth in communications, though? Because yes, he just drops the bomb there. You know? I mean, how important is it? Because I, mean, I don't trust anyone. Mostly, I don't trust anyone. I think it's important. I think there's like room yeah. for evidence and data and facts and precedent yeah. and things like that. But um, if Musi says something the one day and he says the opposite thing in Parliament the next day, it's difficult to find unity of opinion from the same person yeah. in 24 hours. There are enough people still in the world who value credibility and who see that as a value from which they make their choices, including their electoral choices. So in as much as it's important to people to have credible public representatives and governments, then it's important. But, you know, as a, you know, there's a world where every fact is disputed. So it's all fine and well to say, you know, when there's a, something which you can easily dispute, it's either right or wrong. But when these things start becoming marginal, then, you know, we start in, entering that debate about what is truth, what mm. are the facts. <clears throat> and that's, that's where we've gone to in a lot of political debate. And, and you would think that's wrong. No, I don't think it's wrong. No, it's interesting. But do, I mean, do facts matter in political debate anymore? Did they? And more, more, did they ever? They make matter? arguments stronger. If you have some form of objective sort of touchstone that you can say this is, so it makes you more forceful, makes you more credible, makes you more effective. Um, if everyone's saying that you're wrong, then your market, your target market, is obviously. Diminishing, yeah, because no one believes you. But I mean, I can give you stats and stats and stats about immigration to in the U.S. But I could say, you know, immigrants come in, they don't take welfare, they put in more than they put out. Donald Trump says, "No, I'm going to build a fucking wall." That image of a wall is far more powerful than trying to explain the economics of immigration. Yeah, but he's not disputing the facts. Yeah, that's the point. He's he's actually he's changing the argument. He's not saying, I'm going to debate you on the facts. He's going to say, are you talking about facts? Now let's talk about something else entirely different. Let me talk. To, and frankly, here's what he's really doing, to my mind, is instead of having a discussion with your brain, he's punching you in the chest and saying, can you feel that? He takes the rational out of the whole point and makes it emotional. Yeah. And, it- and people respond to that. And I think there are people who respond still mm. to intellectual debate. I, I, but a lot of people want to be emotionally connected. Yeah, because as soon as, the, as soon as it says the wall, and people argue about what type of material, how long will it be? Is it possible to build a wall at all? And it's like, no, but the wall doesn't and should not exist, but that's not the argument anymore. Yeah, except, you know, your question started off about truth. And from, from my mind, what Donald Trump, he might do what you're saying, sort of punch you in the chest instead of give you ideas and, and, and fiddle with the ideas. But a lot of the response to Donald Trump from my perspective is that for 20 years, uh, the facts were uh, dished out slowly. Uh, the way they, you know, certain people and certain corporations and governments wanted those facts dished out. Um, the internet, social media, etc., has democratized a lot of information um, sometimes it's not fully understood by people. But, for example, a person who's living in the United States might uh, turn around and go, CNN keeps telling me MSNBC, maybe Fox, who, it doesn't matter, keeps telling me one thing. So they keep telling me, as Ramon says, the data on immigration is clear. Immigration is a net positive. But I'm living in 
San Antonio. And I notice that crime has gone up. And I also happen to be married to the police chief who keeps telling me that the people he's arresting for these things are people who've jumped the border yeah. illegally. Hmm. And I'm going, okay, but, but the news never talks about illegal immigration. They always lump it together. Immigration, legal, illegal, it's one thing. Um, and I think that a lot of the response and a lot of why Donald Trump you know, they, everyone says they voted for him, or people say that people voted for him, and some of his voters, because he's politically incorrect. He says it like it is. And, and that's often a thing said about politicians who are sort of straight talkers. Um, but I, I think in his case, and perhaps others, it's because people felt that they had been so lied to or given parts of the truth over such a long period of time that that was the reaction to it. They were like, all right, well, you, you, you want to spend decades telling us untruths or half-truths, well, we'll take the guy who, wow, I mean, he's off the chain, but <laughs> at least when he says stuff, we can we can tell that it's a lie, we can tell whether it's a truth, because he lies a hell of a lot, mm. but we, we know what we're being told. We know whether it's a lie or a truth. Yeah. Um, sure. I'm There's a sure, lot in there. I'm not sure whether I buy that 100%, but um, I think that there was certainly a response to what they did with that truth. In other words, the agendas and the, um, the campaigns that were, were, were driven with their ownership or their you know, use of the truth. And I think the, the campaign that was successful for Trump was the, the sense of pushing against that. Mm. I don't think it was about the truth per se, but I think it was what they used it for, the agendas and the campaigns that were driven using it. Yeah, I just there seems to be a lot of frustration in America, and and you know the the Democrats are about to lose the midterms, which they should have won, uh, and I, I might be wrong on this, but but <laughs> they were talking about a blue wave six months ago. They had twenty percent in the in the polls. They were twenty percent ahead on the congressional races. Um, they, last poll, they're now four points behind the Republicans, which they shouldn't be. Mm -hmm. um, they should be winning the House. And they were talking about a blue wave, and the blue wave doesn't seem like it's going to arrive. And the reason is is because they keep pushing the wrong things. And they don't get that people are not resonating with any of their messaging. Um, it's interesting because so they've So what would their messaging be? If you were in charge of their communication strategy and you're up against this Trump machine, mm. what, what, what's the counterpoint? Yeah, what do you say against a, a nationalist, make America great again kind of guy? See, I don't have a problem with the, with the nationalism. I mean, we can debate but, ideas no, around nationalism. You did. But, but if I had a problem with – well, I have enemy. to have a problem with Trump. Steel man the enemy, Jonathan. I think, I think the messaging is um, I would move away. I don't know what I would necessarily move towards. I'd certainly move toward, more towards center. I think they've moved way too far left for the average voter on issues. I, th I think they drive issues that the average voter doesn't care about. So I don't think the average voter in America cares whether a transgender person can find a bathroom. And, in fact, based on polling data, neither do transgender people. Okay, so they pick up an issue like that and they drive it hard. Um, I would drop the Russia thing. They, they've been saying this guy colluded with Russia for over a year. It's 18 months now. It's very clear that he didn't collude with Russia. He might have done some dodgy shit in the campaign or his people did, had meetings they shouldn't have had. Yeah. If you, and the problem now is it's opening Pandora's box because now what Trump started to do is he's gone, right, you're going to catch me for doing something I shouldn't have done or my son for yeah. doing something I shouldn't have done. Cool. I'm going to show you what this head of the, the previous head of the CIA did. I'm going to show you what Obama did. I'm going to show you what Clinton did. 
The reality is they all did dodgy stuff because that's politics. There is some stuff that happens in the background. It's like on the line at best. You know, I, I, my, my view on their communication strategy is that it is such an obvious thing to – there's this ginormous Trump there. And all they want to do is show him up, basically be the anti-Trumps in the debate. And so if he becomes the binary or the counterpoint, mm. then what you stand for is what he isn't, mm. rather than actually resonating with what voters or Americans want. And actually forget about him. I mean, it's a hell of a thing to say. But forget about him and actually offer something and then try to find a way to connect with voters that way rather than making the whole thing about his view on what Well, that's uh, – sorry, just to bring yeah. it locally. I mean, that's, yeah. that's, that's the big criticism of the DA today, right? Anti-ANC, hmm. anti-ANC, anti-ANC. You have a more mature leader of the ANC now who um, is, is polite and calm and – I don't like him, but uh, he's a bit more uh, gregarious than the Likeable. previous one. And uh, and now, <clears throat> yeah, there's no there's no messaging anymore. Yeah, and so you set up uh, the ANC as only bad, and then when they do something good, how do you say you're not allowed to say they're good? Yeah. Um, but the average person sees the good and goes, "Okay, well, you told me they were all bad." That's you know you can flip back to Trump again and say the same thing. I've always said you you got to criticize the guy for what if they just stop with the hyperbole. This should be the message: they stop with the hyperbole. They criticize the stuff he does wrong, yeah. but they leave him or even compliment him for the stuff he does right. It makes the message far more genuine. The, the DA has got similar issues as Ramon just referred to, and, and then you end up losing your own identity. Really, yeah. you see, there's there's another thing is that what, what tends to have happened in, in all our politics is that we personify the political parties into these leaders and they become beauty beauty pageants you know one person against another person who's the best and who do i relate to the most and you know who's the the sexiest politician going and at the end of the day i mean that that wins votes and it and it works but parties need to be more than that mm. campaigns need to be more than that and you know this thing about issues is that when you think about, you know, it's all fine and well to be the Twitterati or the intellectuals and all that kind of stuff and understanding everything that's going on in society. You've got to think about what people who don't give a shit about politics and about government, how they make choices. They don't go around reading sort of, you know, the FT going, well, I like this sort of <laughs> new slant in economics or this is really sort of interesting. This you know, Keynesian approach isn't yeah, working yeah, for me. Exactly. <laughs> they have a feeling, right? Sure. They have just a, a gut feeling and they make the same response like buying sort of something at the supermarket. You have a feeling in your, in, and then you, you make a choice. Now, to connect to that feeling, you've got to do something that gets past the FT, that gets past the podcast. You know, you've got to actually get to people talking at home. And when you can connect with voters that way, like Trump did with the wall, he connected with voters because everyone talked about the bloody wall. Mm. Now tell me, tell me, just yeah, seriously, tell me one single thing that you think that Hillary Clinton got people talking about at dinner time. The that she did that was in, that would have given her votes. So not, uh, not the uh, deleting emails if you're going there. Uh, what, what, tell me anything in her policy in her platform. As a positive for her. As, as a positive, positive for her, people have gone, oh man, let's talk about this. 
No. At home, eh? At home. Not at any other intellectual forum. No, I just think the deplorables was her best and worst speech. She's most well known for calling people racist. Yeah. And that's not good for her either. Yeah, that, that didn't help. I mean, so there's the test. Is yeah. that is that a, a strategy, though? Because um, whichever side you agree with here, the reality is that she always, now that you've asked that question, it seems like she was always on the back foot, even though she was always winning. So maybe when when she was always winning and the polls said that she was we, we, we looked at it and thought, oh well, she's just knocking him down. But if you look at it now, it kind of seems like he was driving the message and the agenda, and she was responding to that, always responding to that, never driving her own message. Well, no, I think she was driving her own message, but her message didn't connect with a real life situation. It connected with people who were interested in her. Mm interested in politics, but it didn't connect with humans. I mean, I suppose the one thing you can give her is she, she probably connected with um, quite a bit with women voters. Um, I, I know yeah. Trump did have quite a lot of women who did vote for him, but it's still, he lost the, the women no, vote. Sure. Um, and I think that that whole glass ceiling thing, that you, the whole first woman president thing, that maybe brought yeah. voters to her. But again, and let me just be a cynic here, okay? Mm. So let's take that because that's a good point. You can sit around dinner table with your family and you can say, oh, jeez, you know, it'd be great to have a female president because we need to break the glass ceiling and it's important, okay? You have that conversation once, mm. right? Tomorrow night you talk about it? Wednesday night you talk about it? Trust me, you'll talk about the war on various conversations because it keeps coming up and it's controversial and people keep talking about it and it has legs. Yeah, and so, yes, sure, that's a thing for her. But where are the legs? Mm. And, and you need to have that to resonate with voters because then they're going to make a choice based on what? Based on this nebulous sense of who you are? Yeah, and the war creates conflict in the family too. And you unfriend each other from Facebook. And then you <laughs> see each other in your life like, oh, you're unfriending because of the war. So you're still <laughs> thinking about the war. Great strategy. So, Nick, I mean, in, in the 20 years, um, well, I don't know how long you've been in communications, what, what, what political advert or slogan or messaging locally has really struck you? Preferably those where you're not involved, but uh, well, it, it has to be. It's fine. Well, I mean, the, the famous one that I was involved with, um, I mean, it wasn't – I didn't come up with it, but I was literally sitting in the focus group in Durban. It was a focus group of Indian voters – I think they were sort of either sort of 35 to 45 Indian voters from Chatsworth. And we'd been going around the country. And the guy sitting next to me said, you know what? These people want you to fight back. That's, that's where it was born, in Durban, in a focus group. And, you know, people are going to post-rationalize. They're going to tell you what they think a fight back was about. Mm. But for a moment in time, 1999, five years into our democracy, the ANC are not working out. People get an idea that this is not what we expected. We expected much more from them. We expected stuff to be happening quicker. This is looking mucky. This is not, not what we expected. Life has not got better. That was something which resonated. It resonated in a big, big way. And I think it was, a, I mean, look, I don't care what people think about it. I think it was a bloody powerful Effective slogan. Well, it grew the vote, so it must yeah. have worked yeah. to some extent. No, it did. Uh, really? Okay, the fight back campaign. Mm. I thought the stop Zimmer was very good, especially looking at it now. Yeah, I read, it's I a read, retrospective. I read thing, Helen's yeah. in his piece from 2008 that she wrote on Project's Web or something, and yeah. everything she said came true yeah. t 
exponentially. Yeah. Exponentially. I'm like, you know, you know, but when people are, are correct in their times, they never seen as, uh, do you, as do heroes. You, do you think, so that Fight Back campaign got a lot of criticism even at the time. Yeah. Uh, but importantly, yeah, was there was no backing down. So that campaign was held, it went forward, they went all the way through the elections with it. Mm -hmm. um, and to some extent, Tony Leon made his sort of, um, I mean, he already was that type of character within Parliament, but it kind of Galvanized. was who he was. It, it became he, the guy who fought back yeah, in Parliament. The, the puggy pugilist, um, and, and so um, now we seem to have, uh, they decide on a direction, the people freak out about the direction yeah, okay. and they change it. How about this, guys? Yeah. What was the DA slogan in the last election? What was the ANC slogan in the last election? What was the EFF slogan in the last? You don't remember. Indeed, I don't. It's point made. Yeah. So why? And that was going to be one of my questions. Why is okay? The ANC is powerful culturally. I get that. Yeah. But their messaging doesn't actually work. I mean, it must work well with their constituents. What do you mean by their messaging? Well, I don't know. Their the election posters. There's two. It's a better life for all, generally. Yeah. That's the that sort of shot. Uh, you know, my view on the ANC is that they're Manchester United. Seriously, they're Manchester United. You. Yeah, that's brilliant. And actually, if you think about it, exactly what you mean. If you are, if you are, if your parents are Manchester United, you're Manchester United. Mm. And if you don't have a team, you pick Manchester United. No, no, even better than that. If your team is playing shit and losing, are you going to go support Manchester City? Not a chance. It doesn't matter. You'll go to Europe and you'll beat people up for Manchester United. You'll wear that jersey. You'll be proud of that jersey. Your children will be proud of that jersey. You are Manchester United for life. That's the ANC. Or Liverpool. Yeah. And that is a great brand. You know, you've got a brand that transcends generations. It doesn't matter about quality. It is, it is you. Mm. So tell me about a slogan then. You know what I mean? It is, yeah. it's, it, the slogan is cool. It was clever. It worked at a certain time. But the brand, the thing that they are, transcends. Okay, so, so how do you break that? Yeah. You kill all the voters. <laughs> you start a new football club. <laughs> <I> mean, <laughs> you need a plane crash. Because they're Manchester United, you need a plane crash as they did the had eat each other. in 1958. <laughs> so basically, that's what you have to do. Because it's a cultural thing. It's a... It's a, it's a Cultural emblem, the ANC. It's not a political party. It's not a. Uh, can't it's, you? It's a, it's a, no, but the fishes have started. I mean, the EFF. Yes. I mean, all of the parties. Of the, I mean, the UDM cope. All of them, to a certain extent. But I think the fact that the EFF can be as successful, as sexy, um, iconic, that's a real threat. Eh? That's a real threat because you know these other guys split away and sort of became subdued. Sort of variants of the of the of, you know they were they they just really became nothing, but the EFF, irrespective of what their their voter is, their their, their vote, their, the perception of them in society is of this vibrant, growing thing, okay, and that is a threat to the brand. That's a real threat to the ANC brand. All right, fair enough. I'm interested in the DA brand because I have no idea what it is anymore. We we had a discussion, what, two, three weeks ago. Uh, stop the madness. Yeah, stop the madness. Um, and <clears throat> my issue is, is as a, up till now, a DA voter, uh, is that 
I don't know what the brand is anymore because on one weekend you'll have the leader of the party standing up and indulging in identity politics. Uh, the next uh, sort of week you'll read a really good, well-written article by one of an MP uh which is completely flies in the face of that and is very pro-liberal. Um, I, I don't know what that I don't know what that brand is anymore. What's your sense of what's going on? Well, let me give you a different perspective than than you would expect to to answer. Is that I mean, obviously, the, there's a the party has gone from when they could literally caucus in the elevator mm. to now this huge movement across South Africa and when I talk, uh, speak about message discipline, it's a, it's a really really important part of any organization but it, it, you know, I often when I teach people communications, I use this line, I say, we fight for democracy, we don't practice it and so one of the things about the communications strategy of the DA when I was running it in the sort of early 2000s we were hard ass. You were on message. No one strayed from that, and it were. It, and we had a small, relatively small party and organisation. People stuck to it, and there was a massive peer pressure on sticking to it, on not breaking ranks. And so here's the question, Ren: Is that the party has democratised? <clears throat> Social media has exacerbated that, mm. just like we were talking about earlier. Now, the real question is, is that a healthy thing or an unhealthy thing? I mean, yes, you, you can't create that message discipline, which is very useful, which is very useful when you want to embed an idea into the market. But the party is much more democratic. So you tell me. It depends on the leader. If the leader is strong, democracy is a bad idea. If the leader is weak, it might be a bad idea to have a bit more flexibility within it you see I, I my view on and we've been into it extensively so I don't want to repeat too much but yeah. but my view is that the the DA is is kind of losing its its foundational principles and some people know that it's doing that within the party there are people who don't want that to happen and there are people who very much want that to happen it would seem mm-hmm. um, and they 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 seem like they f- there's a f- feeling, and I don't say this from any authority, but it, it, from the outside it appears as if there's a feeling that they have to move away from their principles if they want to grow. And I think that it's quite the opposite. I think that you have to stay with your principles, and over time you will grow. I, I think this is borne out um, in every other country that has relatively, mm-hmm. inverted commas, stable politics where you see um, votes swing from the left to the right. It's the same populace voting, but they swing because not because the left becomes the right or the right becomes the left. They both stay where they are. In one time, one thing is more popular. In another time, another is. At some point in the future, Mm. people will see that the ANC – this is not working. Like people already are seeing that to some extent. I think they're going to get a reprieve now in 2019, regardless of what happens, because they've got Cyril. But the reality is the economic writing's on the wall. Um, so at some point, they're going to turn around and look for alternatives. If you've been the principled party that's stuck by a certain message all along, I think you're going to succeed quite well at the polls. If you've wavered, 
between one side and the other side and whatever, I don't think that sends a very confident message. Yeah. I mean, other than the extremes on the, on the, the left and right wings, mm. um, I, I don't think this is a, th- a thing about the DA only. I mean, look at all political parties around the world. The, there's this, you know, they're coalescing around the center, and there is this the end of philosophy. Mm. It's now, as I said before, it's about the personalities, and it's about those those key things that they can use to, you know, to campaign on. But the the, the values and the philosophy is not the spinal cord that holds everything in place. Yeah. But you know, there have been victories because of that, and it it takes a certain kind of. I don't know, the determination to stick by your... If you, if you get given a position where you said, take your philosophical route, be pure to philosophy, and you'll definitely lose votes. Now, it's all fine and well for everyone outside philosophically to go, well, I'm a purist. No, no, definitely not. <laughs> you know, you're inside a party, and you say, what you say to yourself is this. You say, you know what? Let's fudge this because we are about the greater good, and we are good, and we are generally about this thing. And that's, that's what happens with parties everywhere in the world. Now, will there be a backlash to that? Will there be purists who emerge? Perhaps. But I think this is a continuum. That's what Tony Blair did, right? With new labor. New labor infused labor into the culture. Not into the economics or the politics, but into the culture of England. That's why he was successful. He was a fucking neoliberal, right? I mean, he could have been a Tory. He could have been a Tory very easily, but no, he was New Labour, no, no socialism. I'm just going to infuse the culture with. But, I mean, uh, there's. I mean, what about the Reagan Democrats? You know, Ronald Reagan. Ronald Reagan was able to to reach to both sides to hold them all together, with you know, not necessarily about really about telling everyone you need to be have some sort of Republican philosophy. Mm. He had some ideas that everyone could agree on. Around the middle. Okay. So, so are we too harsh? Well, Jonathan, because he votes, I don't. Is Jonathan too harsh? About? About the DA. Losing its uh, focus or losing its uh, no, look, core I, look, principles. I, look, I, look, firstly, do I think he's too harsh? No. I think that every party needs a Jonathan to say, hey, is that liberal or is that not liberal? Um, every party fudges and every party needs to be held to account. And it's, it's the nature of things. They mm. are going to fudge. And the question is whether, you know, it's important for you, important for them. I mean, this is part of constructive debate. So, yeah. no, he's not too harsh. He should still keep shouting. All right. Let's quickly. Um, I've got a question about Bell Bal- Pottinger. Bal- wait for uh, you. Well, okay. Go, go, go with your Bell Pottinger. All right. Bell Pottinger. You say it's quite a uh, – the WMC thing was actually quite a good uh, insidious idea. But it was a good one in terms of PR. It worked. Yeah, no, it worked. It worked. But <clears throat> is it useful to portray yourself? Okay, today it's useful to portray yourself as a victim. I get that. It's not useful to portray the Guptas as the quintessential BE oligarchs doing what is good for the state by providing cheap coal and making home affairs more efficient and all this sort of shit. And they employ thousands of people. And they employ thousands of black people because that's very in, in, you know, in vogue now. Is it useful to be, especially when you're a billionaire, to be seen as a victim? As Bell Potterton did, and not very successfully at the end of the day. 
Well, it depends what you want to achieve. I mean, everything, every piece of communication that you are that you go about to do needs to have an intention. Mm. So the question is, what is your intention with that communication? Well, for for them, it was to vilify. Um, well, it was uh, to vilify the enemies and create a new enemy, I suppose. Well, assuming the, they were enemies in the first place, do you think Rupert gives a fuck about the Guptas? I don't know. They no, no, so. no. But uh, politically, they were enemies, and 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 if by de- deflecting and going, well, you all want to talk about what the Guptas have done together with Jacob Zuma, but actually, the real enemy here is 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 white monopoly capital, and and all they're doing is freeing the capital yeah. from that sort of. Um, construction, but that should be a good news story. The Guptas are fighting for for freedom. You so know, why do you of, think it wasn't? Then? I mean, that's, I mean, why do you think it wasn't? Because uh, if you you package that in the same way for a different thing, so um, Ashwin Villemsa walks off the set. Of course, he's justified in doing so, Ramon. He's he's taking back the power from the white. Uh, sort of control that's been in rugby since the apartheid years. That mm. was across newspapers, mainstream newspapers across this week. Right. So the same newspapers that were anti the Guptas. So it's just it's a similar message, but packaged slightly differently. But, you know, the Belpont, This is not the Belpont just story, though. The, the real question is: is we live in a world where the influences are on Twitter and social media. That's where the influences, academics, journalists, they all exist there. Now. If you can manipulate that environment, should it be a free market that anyone can manipulate, or should there be some version of accountability? And this is a this is a philosophical question. Because if I can then say I am going to get influencers in South Africa to buy a narrative that I have literally bought, mm. is that a good thing? Is that a bad thing? Or do you not care? Because that's actually the debate about Bell Pottinger. It was they bought an idea and they transplanted it into our discourse. I think that you know, I think that undermines what I would consider to be free and fair conversation debate. Okay, but was a good PR though. Yeah, it, yeah, it was good PR because it worked, but then it was found out, and then it was bad PR. Yeah, because because, <laughs> the, because, yeah. The, because the, the the I mean, what I found really strange was it was so obviously. A campaign, the bot, the Twitter bots were obvious. The speeches were obvious. Like it was, it looked like the the plan was solid, but on the ground when they tried to teach people what to do, like it just fell apart, just through incompetence. <laughs> yeah, I mean they were found out because they they broke the rules, and I suppose there's this thing, this is tension about what is public relations and so-called spin. You know, it's about you can frame things to journalists and to people in a way that allows them to choose or do you buy it? And is that also just a version of framing things? If you can get 25,000 Twitter line. accounts. Yeah, the question is, is there a line mm. and what is the line? Yeah, so I, th- I think there's a very uh, sort of loose moral interpretation uh, and you actually, I don't, I don't know where that is because it, it seems to be... Uh, you know, uh, the, the Mail and Guardian published that the clerk thing with, with Musi, uh, which mm. was mm. very damaging at the time, and then eventually apologized, but it was like on a side type of thing. A couple of people were embarrassed by it, but the damage was done. Uh, this happens for, to all the parties, I think, to some extent, um, and to uh, to people, to individuals mm. as well. Uh, and it's funny because that was 
also it's a similar thing, right? So where's the, the I don't I, I just the, that moral line yeah. is is very bent. Yeah. Um, I just want to quickly because we, we we've got to wrap up, but Helen Ziller. Uh, and generally with social media. You, you, you've got a chapter in the book on social media. There is very good advice. Go, go read the book uh, on when you should post to social media, when you shouldn't. <laughs> yeah. um, uh, the one is never post while drunk, <laughs> but um, which I don't think Helen was when she posted about Singapore. Uh, but I, I enjoy her tweets, and I, yeah. I, I didn't have a problem with her Singapore tweets. Your view is that you sh- she should never have said any of that stuff. Well, it was the wrong space, perhaps. I mean, I believe in freedom of expression. Um, I suppose the real question is: is when you when you are the leader of a party, or you are a leader in a party, um, it's more than just simply being right. It's more than simply just being the person who um, has something to say, and you're going to use your freedom of expression. You've got to carry with you the problems of reputation and perception of the party because a political party is a branding, ongoing branding exercise and things will build the brand and break the brand. If you happen to be a big, heavy name in a party and you say something and you associate with that brand, you must then deal with the consequences for that brand. Yeah, But you don't, but you don't have your individual view. It's the view of the brand. And even if you say, no, it's not my view... It doesn't matter. Yeah, but really that, that's, that's the thing about personality politics. Yeah. When these personalities are the personification of the brand, it comes with consequences. I've got one last thing. Oh, yeah, okay. Anything else, Ramon? Uh, so towards the beginning of the book, actually, you talk about how yourself and Ryan came up with, I think, in some sort of working group, yeah. um, how the DA should move forward. This is in 1995. DP Youth. Okay, DP youth, okay, and, and how the party should move forward. And everyone's obviously coming up with, you know, uh, housing and, and very logical sort of governmental sounding things. And, yeah. and so this is a personal question. It's nothing to do with the party. And you guys come up, come forward with sex, drugs, and alcohol. Is that correct? Yep. And that's a very libertarian view on the world, really, and perhaps what political parties should be doing. And I, I think – not you can correct me, but your view is uh, take these things and free them. Correct. Um, and and obviously those are the most contentious things. But if you free those things, you free everything. So have you moved from that? Have you moved closer to that belief? Where, where do you feel we should be going ideally? Okay. Well, first thing first: <laughs> sex, drugs, and alcohol are the first three words of the book, which I kind of thought it would be kind of a cool thing to start a book with, <laughs> let's be fair. But, no, I believe in it. I believe in it because it, it also it's, – it's a line. It's a thread that goes through because opportunity and responsibility comes from freedom. And so you give people freedom, but then if you're the state, opportunities and responsibilities are the exercise of that freedom. So, yeah, I believe the state must get out of my business. The state must not be telling me what I as an adult can do if it doesn't hurt other adults, and then it must do its job. So I've always been that way. I think that's a good way to end. Ramon? Well, can't agree more. Playing on your phone there. I agree. Yeah, sorry. I, I, my voice note came on. Um, no, interesting, Nick. Interesting. So, Jonathan, we need to create more conflict. So basically, we need to become Milo Yiannopoulos and Donald Trump together. 
Yeah, you good luck with that. On the reggae. Let, let me know how it turns you out. You can be Marlo. Nick, <laughs> sure. Very gay. Uh, Nick, thanks for coming. Thanks, guys. Uh, and uh, second one in a day at Cliff Central. So you, uh, you're really working the place. Yeah. And the book, since you read it, Jonathan, is called Spin, The Art of Managing the Media. Yeah, it's uh, well worth your while. I'm sure it's available in all good bookshops. And not so good ones as well. All of them. Uh, and yeah, highly recommended. As always, you can find us on Twitter at Renegade underscore report. On Facebook, both the page and in the Renegade Report group where we have interesting discussions about stuff on the podcast and not on the podcast. And uh, we always appreciate you listening. We'll catch you next time. Cheers. This is CliffCentral.com.